0: After a brief hiatus of a week, I want to invite you to resume our study of Matthew by turning to chapter 14, and we'll begin at verse 13. And again, uh, verse 13 links this with what came before in verses 1 through 12, And we'll mention what we said last time in the sermon. But as a reminder, in verse 13, when it said that when Jesus heard this, the this is is not the news about John's death, which is being told as a flashback, the he heard this is referring back to the news from verse 1, that now... Herod is aware of Jesus, and so Jesus is now on Herod's radar. So that's the news that prompts Jesus to make a strategic withdrawal from the region and everything that follows, but we cannot miss the clear comparison and contrast between the scene in verses 1 through 12, with what we're about to read. So let's look. Matthew, the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the town's When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You, give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over and those who ate were about 5000 men besides women and children immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds and after he had dismissed the crowds he went up on the mountain by himself to pray Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of the living God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this passage. We thank you for the mighty demonstrations of Jesus' power, but also of his concern. We thank you, O God, for reconciling us to yourself and for not just saving us, but for keeping us safe. Thank you. Be with us as we reflect upon what this passage has for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As I said before reading this passage, uh, these verses stand in stark contrast to what we saw two weeks ago when reading verses 1 through 12. So we see that in verses 1 through 12, you have this debauched scenery of self-aggrandizing disregard and ambivalence on the part of the ruling uh, party of the day. That Herod is having a birthday party and that this party itself represents a departure from the culture of his people and instead he's embodying that my way for thee, my way for me. Away for thee, away for me. Model that he's different; he's a different sort. You people exist, doing the rabble work. I exist to reap the benefits. And so he's having this party that's drunken, debauched, sensuous. How he's very clearly uh, showcasing his basically stepdaughter, who, as we learned from Josephus, would have been 12 to 14. Sensuous, debauched, drunken, and it ends in a geyser of blood as a man's head is brought on a plate. And John wasn't killed through the due process of law, He wasn't killed even particularly because Herod wanted him dead. He's killed because a drunken, proud ruler with absolute indifference to his people was played by his wife who was bearing a grudge. And she used a girl as her tool. It's a sad tragedy from one vantage point. And we have to interact in a world in which the ruling class, the powers that be, are often more typified by that than we may wish to admit. And interacting in a world where the the leaders see the people as mere sheep to be shorn And that the rules don't apply to them. And whether we live or die really doesn't matter to them. It's easy to become angry. To become bitter. To become vengeful. To become hopeless. And what's worse, it's easy to transfer that relationship and impose it on what we believe our relationship with God is like. We are under the authority of earthly rulers. We are under the authority of the king of kings. If rulers show indifference to me? How different then is this ruler, especially when so much bad seems to happen? And I want you to know that the contrast is here intentionally so that we can see that in the midst of a a passage where, where, where two key things are happening at the same time, one, which we will talk about in a moment, is Jesus' deity is, is forcefully showcased. But second, that the disciples are, are taught a very valuable lesson about the nature of faith and obedience. In, in the midst of it, the thread running through it is the amazing care of a loving king. And I need you to hear that before we go on. I don't know what troubles you're experiencing. I don't know what anxieties are laying on your heart. Whether it's financial, whether it's relational, whether it's health, or whether you're just borrowing trouble from the news. I don't know, but understand this, Jesus truly does care. And in this weird paradox of life, it is oftentimes the the pretentious that think nothing of coming before the Lord with their every wish to be fulfilled. And yet the true child of God oftentimes, for some sad, unfortunate reason, oftentimes feels like if I go to him with this petty concern, I'm bothering him or, 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 or that it's not worth his time. Or, and I want you to know Nothing you're going through is too small for Jesus. Nothing is too petty. If it bothers you, take it to the Lord. He cares. Okay? So first, that is the thread that runs through this passage. That his care is in stark contrast to the ambivalence of Herod and the worldly system he represents. But here you see first Jesus' deity forcefully presented. And of course, it's presented through two needs, one for provision and one for protection. The deity of Jesus, that cornerstone of the Christian faith, was in the first century not not clearly understood, but we have to understand it and we have to come to grips with it or else who are we following? Jesus. Who do you say he is? Matthew keeps coming back to that point. Is he a mere faith healer? Is he a magician? Or is he the son of the living God? The son of man who has been given all rule, authority, power, and dominion. The feeding of the 5,000, which we see here in verses 13 through 21, is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. It's important. In fact, it's so important that in Mark's telling of this, in Mark 6, the disciples and their fear and their terror at Jesus walking on the water is specifically alluded or specifically referenced to the fact that it's because they didn't rightly interpret the feeding of the 5,000. Check it out, Mark 6. This is an important passage. And what's funny is it's a scenario that Jesus sets up in order to demonstrate his power. We learn that the the crowds come out and Jesus, who is going away to have some Alone time for a strategic withdrawal, and also in Mark, we learned that the disciples had just returned from their ministry, and that they were tired, and they needed some rest, which means, this is an exegetical comment, that every reference to the disciples in Matthew, from the time Jesus sent them out in chapter 10, refers not to to the 12 particularly, but to the larger group of his followers that he had. Remember, Jesus had more than 12 followers. It was 12 intimates that he had, that he, we call the disciples and later the apostles, but there was actually a fairly decent crowd. And so the disciples are there. Jesus is trying to keep a low profile. The people come out. And Jesus has compassion. And and remember that this word, compassion, is being used of Jesus to describe his feelings for them, despite the fact that for three chapters, Jesus has been going on about how the crowds have, by and large, not repented. They have been rejecting him left and right. Even here in this passage, look at the end of it. At the end of the feeding of 5,000, what comment does Matthew make about how the people respond? Nothing. In other words, while there are some that John will report who were so amazed they wanted to make him king by force, Nonetheless, the general tone of the crowds is ambivalence. The people want a dinner and a show. How would you respond if, for months now, you've been miracling and teaching and healing? And the people turn out. They're interested in what you got to say. They, they, they love the circus. But they don't repent. How would you act? Would you, would you have compassion on yet another crowd of such people? Of course not. And that's why this passage is so beautiful. Our hearts are fickle. As we're going to see in just a few verses with Peter. I get tired of how commentators flip flop regarding Peter, that they point out, you know, tisk, tisk, he should have had faith. Man, he just he's the only one who got out of the boat. None of you, none of you would get out of the I mean, no. So so they beat him up. Oh, shame on Peter for not believing. What? It took took major chutzpah to get out of the boat. But, But then again, he did start doubting. And specifically, he starts doubting when he sees the wind. He takes his eyes off Jesus, and he starts reflecting on the circumstance, and the circumstance proves overwhelming. Peter, in one sense, is the personification of the fickleness of the people which is itself a picture of the fickleness of our own heart. Come on. Each and every one of us knows experientially what I'm talking about. Where we have our days where, where we are just on fire for Jesus, and our moments where we we, we see and we believe and we feel with, with clarity. And then something happens. A circumstance pops up, and and our eyes are taken off Jesus and we're thinking about our bellies or our futures or or or, or, or the hair that's growing out of weird ears and and, and you and, and next thing you know we're, we we seem like we're no different we all know what that's like and Jesus has compassion That's awesome. That is awesome. In that moment when when Peter sinks, notice how Matthew puts the word immediately Jesus reached out his hand. That's awesome. A good, kind, gracious Savior. But Jesus demonstrates his deity. This is why you can trust him, because he's not just a magician. He's not just a faith healer. Jesus creates these two contexts to showcase his power. Yes, the Bible records that he's done some amazing things, healing deep, People are casting out demons, healing people of various diseases. He's even raised a girl from the dead, but he kept it on the down low. And and people could have been led to believe that she indeed had just been sick. And we read the Bible and we know it's legitimate, but come on. We live in a world where faith healers heal people all the time. Magicians do amazing things. David Copperfield made the Statue of Liberty disappear. Some of you remember that? Okay. So maybe he just had someone acting crazy. And someone who's sick, well, maybe they were just part of The show. But here in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus takes out all the stops. It's getting late in the day, and what I love is that in verse 15, the disciples reveal a common sense duh. Way to resolve the problem. Jesus, it's getting late. Before it gets too late, let's dismiss the crowds and the people can go buy buy food. Makes sense. And then Jesus, and, and John, in his telling of this, he adds the parenthetical comment that Jesus is setting this whole thing up precisely because of what Jesus knows he's gonna do. It's Jesus' plan here to showcase his his deity, his divinity. And so when Jesus says no in verse 16, you give them something to eat. I'm trying to say the word the way in the Greek, it's a forceful. No, it's not sufficient to come up with a plan for them to eat. I want you to give them something to eat. And you can almost hear the disciples laugh at the apparent ridiculousness of the command and perhaps throw up their, their hands. I mean, this is, this is ridiculous. A year's wages wouldn't buy enough food for these people. And what, what we've got here are five loaves and two fishes. And, of course, Mark specifies that it's a little boy who has it, which causes Scholars to indicate this boy was either part of the entourage as, as, a, as a person carrying things or was carrying things as part of a family, um, whatever. But the disciples have at their disposal five loaves of rye bread, which would have been cheap. Nowadays, we think that that's great. Rye bread is great. But, but back in the day, it was peasant food. And to fish, don't think sea bass, and certainly don't think sockeye salmon. I mean, you're probably little more than sardines. Okay, Um, and Jesus uses that as an opportunity to showcase his divine power. And make no mistake. Contrary to the liberals who think that what is implied here is that Jesus and the generosity of the boy uh, inspired everyone to share their food or something. No. Jesus is literally creating matter. He takes five loaves and just keeps tearing off a piece and he tears off a piece and there's it's like he hadn't torn it off it's there's more there he is creating matter publicly on a hillside not with a stash behind him not with anything up his sleeves in the folds of his of his man dress he's creating matter What do you make of someone that can create matter? That's impressive. And then they go. And Jesus dismisses the crowds. And the storm comes upon the lake. Jesus is walking towards them on the water. Who walks across water? I mean, come on that's impressive too and they think he's a ghost think about what would you think what would you think if it's night time water spray is going everywhere the waves are crashing the wind is howling and this figure and his clothes would have been blowing that would have been really frightening And then Jesus says to take courage. It is I. Ego, Ami. The Greek phrase that literally means I am. The Septuagint's rendering of the great I am of the Old Testament. Jesus, by saying this, Invokes the name of God for himself. Therefore, do not be afraid. Jesus is the one who not only creates matter, but he is the one who creates, pauses, rescinds, rolls back the rules of gravity, of buoyancy, of physics itself. He is absolute Lord of creation. And what's more, when he tells Peter to come out, he bends those rules for not just his own body, but for another person absolute Lord of creation. Kids, some of you like to play Minecraft and you like to go into creator mode in which you have absolute ability to circumvent whatever normal rules exist in that matrix. Jesus has absolute Power to go into creator mode in the cosmos at will. No wonder then that when he steps in the boat, just on the heels of having seen matter created, and now he's walked across water, and as soon as he steps in the boat, he doesn't speak, the water just becomes still. No wonder then that the disciples do what would have been anathema for any Jew to do. They fall down and they worship and testify truly, you are the Son of God. That is amazing. So I'd want to point out briefly. Four things from this passage. First, when you're going through hard times. When you're feeling jaded and cynical. Man, remember Jesus and come to him. He's compassionate. He is absolute Lord of the cosmos but he's not too busy for you. Isn't that mind-blowing? That's amazing. How could you not love someone like that? Trust him. And, and that's what the disciples didn't get. When, when, when Mark points out that they were terrified because they didn't rightly understand the meaning of the feeding of the 5,000, trust him. If, if he's able to create matter out of thin air, wh- what could he not do? Trust him. And what am I trusting him for? Well, has he not promised that he will give rest to our souls? That he will take away our burdens and and give us an easy yoke. Has he not? That he will be with us to give us an abundant life. So come to him. Trust him. Note that what he gives you, it may not be, thank God, the debauched feast going on in Herod's palace. He gave this crowd bread and fish. But he gave them more than enough. It wasn't fancy, but it was satisfying. And is that not the lot that he has given to us? He's given us, not necessarily The Feast of Kings, but he's a good, kind Savior who has satisfied our every need and has given us more than enough. Trust him. And learn from Peter the nature of faith. For us, in this life, it's imperfect. I mean, Peter, man, you, he has the audacity. If it's really you, command me to come out there. And then he goes, the only one. That is awesome. I mean, that, that, is, that is gutsy. But then he sees the waves. He hears the wind. He, he takes his eyes off Jesus. And in a very real sense, brothers and sisters that's that's not just a picture of faith but it's a picture of why is it that we don't seem so often to experience that blessed full life that Jesus says he has for us could it be that we've taken our eyes off Jesus and that the key is to turn them back to Jesus and it's not that the adversity will go away but our ability to stand in the adversity will be unparalleled. And so we see from Peter that the nature of faith is we, we have this conviction of the certainty of things unseen. That result in us having confidence in Christ. But then from Peter we learn that confidence in Christ leads to Courage through Christ. Have you noticed how frequently the New Testament calls us to courage? And how Revelation specifically says cowards are cast into hell. It is not okay to be a fraidy cat. Be brave in Jesus. How can I be brave? Because he's the one who bends all creation to his will. And finally, what we learn from here should impel us to greater faithfulness, greater fidelity, is that is when Jesus gives an assignment, he makes a way. I'm not saying that the way he will make for you is that he's going to just miracle stuff out of thin air. But we don't serve... A king like one of the generals in the army who tells you to do it and you figure it out. Jesus makes a way. If that way is him miracling, awesome. If that way is him calming, he makes a way. What we are called to do, brothers and sisters, is trust that he is able and then proceed fearlessly, tirelessly with tenacity, boldness, and courage to do what he has called us to do, trusting him to make the way, to make every mountain level, to remove every obstacle that that we would otherwise be incapable of insurmounting, recognizing he makes the way. Our job is faithfulness because he has proven himself faithful. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for being so kind, for being so compassionate, for not being ambivalent like one of the rulers of the world. We ask, oh God, that you would bear with our infirmities, with our fickleness and our good moments and our bad, that by your Spirit you would continue to work your good and sovereign purposes for us, that we would believe with all of our heart that you indeed are Lord. Grant, O God, that in every way Jesus would be glorified in and through and by us. It's in his name we ask this. Amen.